Hello and welcome to Travels Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Unseen Histories. My name's Violet and this week we're sweeping through Sicily and southern Italy in the company of the original revolutionary hero Giuseppe Maria Garibaldi. In the mid-19th century change was in the air as new political movements began questioning the status quo. Powerful ideas like socialism, republicanism, liberalism and nationalism were spreading throughout Europe harnessed by charismatic leaders determined to bring about dramatic social change. None were more charismatic than Giuseppe Garibaldi, the legendary hero who had escaped execution in Piedmont and survived years as a freedom fighter in the South American Ragamuffin War and the Civil War in Uruguay. In the 1850s, Garibaldi sailed the world and was welcomed by working people everywhere from New York to Tyneside via Manila, Tangiers and Lima. Along the way, he gathered support and funds for his unification project. Back in Europe, Garibaldi focused his energy on the unification of Italy, which at this point was a loose collection of city-states at the mercy of various foreign and internal powers. Our guide on this epoch-making trip is Jamie Mackay. This episode relates to his book, The Invention of Sicily, which tells the story of this fascinating island. Jamie Mackay is a writer and translator based in Florence. He contributes to The Guardian, the TLS and Freeze, among others. Hello and welcome to Travels Through Time, Jamie Mackay. Um, It's great to have you on. Thanks, it's great to be here. Uh, You are talking to us today from Florence, uh, where you live, I believe. I am indeed, yes, uh, from the town of Fiesole, so, so just, ab- just above Florence, in fact. Okay, and um, we're going to talk today about your um, lovely book, The Invention of Sicily, but before we do, can you tell us a bit about your own relationship with Italy and why you live there, how, how that came about? Yeah, absolutely. So, so, so Violet, I've been living in Italy for, for 10 years now, working uh, as a freelance journalist uh, on and off for different magazines uh, for the international media in the UK, in America, a bit of Italian publications as well. And I've spent a lot of my time here working in the south of the country. So I've recently published a book on Sicily, uh, The Invention of Sicily with Verso Books, which came out earlier earlier this year in the summer. And my main interests, you know, with regard to Italian questions have always been, number one, uh, arts and culture and sort of the deep, long historical processes that we see interacting within a Mediterranean geography here. Uh, but also questions of migration and uh, population exchange and the whole diversity of cultures that have met uh, on this peninsula. So a lot of my work is concerned with kind of unpicking those influences, tracking lost histories and, uh, yeah, getting under the surface of some of the history that maybe gets ignored in some of the great sweeping uh, European books that we might we might read about Italy. And that's very much the story of Sicily in particular, isn't it? This um, very central place in the Mediterranean that was conquered 
by pretty much every civilization um, around. Um, and so can you tell us a bit about your book, how you approached it, how you, you what, what you wanted to do? Yeah, I mean, so it's an interesting, an interesting one. I, I never really set out to write a history book, to be completely honest. This is something that crept up on me as I began the writing process. I was down in Sicily in 2014 covering the refugee crisis uh, and I was doing kind of documentary work following individuals largely from North Africa and Asia who were arriving into Europe and into Sicily for the first time doing this kind of uh, interview based reporting work. But as I sought to contextualise that phenomenon, uh, I gradually found myself going further and further back into time and realising that these points of exchange across the Mediterranean Sea had been occurring in different forms and creating interesting cultural moments over, over thousands of years. And so gradually I started to track this down and the book started to evolve as a chronological history going right the way back from the ancient Greek and Phoenician colonization to the present day as a way of framing some of the of the population exchange we're seeing we're seeing now. And can you tell us how you divided up your book and how you approach the different uh, eras in Sicilian history? Yeah, I mean, this was a, a really important methodological point that came up uh, early on. So the first decision I took was to was to cut the book into two halves. I mean, I'm dealing with, with over 2000 years of history. So in part one, uh, I look at everything from the from the Greek colonial period up until round about the Black Death and the Spanish occupation of Sicily. And my goal in this first section was to try and point to some of what I call utopian fragments, which is to say these moments in which cosmopolitanism uh, uh, was able to translate itself into fascinating manifestations of aesthetics in architecture or experiments in governance. And so I, I take a kind of uh, holistic view at some of these experiments. And while it can never be uh, a comprehensive look, I point to 10 or 12 of these examples from the Arab Norman period uh, right the way back into, into ancient Greece. And as I say, some of the uh, later, later experiments with Spanish Catholicism. The second half of the book uh, concerns essentially the age of nationalism, modern history and the otherness of Sicily in relation to the Italian project. So looking at the way in which some of the unique uh, cosmopolitanism of the islands longer past its ancient and medieval history had a longer term lingering implication on how the island would or would not be subsumed into the kingdom and later Republic of Italy. So I go on to look at the mafia and things that people would expect, but I'm really trying to maintain that uh, larger conversation about how cultures look and what can nation states do and not do uh, in the 20th and 21st century. So fascinating. So that brings us quite nicely on to um, your chosen year. So I'm going to ask you the question now, which we ask all of our guests, which is that if you could have got into a time machine and travel back to a particular year in history, which year would it be? Yeah, so the year I've chosen uh, is 1860. 1860 was the kind of apex of the Risorgimento, the, 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 the confluence of movements that led to the unification of Italy. Uh, and I chose this again, partly with my Sicilian frame in mind, because this is a, you know, it's an extraordinary story of all of the stories of, of, of nation state building in Europe. I mean, the Italian one has to be one of the most exciting, one of the most complex, and I think one of the most poorly understood. Um, as I was doing this research on the Sicily book, I started to realise that a lot of the certainties about 
uh, this story that the Italian kingdom was replacing something that was kind of there, that was backward and was a mess and was just associated with the with the with the kind of march of progress forwards isn't necessarily the the, the only way of looking at that history. So yeah, I want to go back to 1860 to look at the Italian unification, but from a Sicilian and southern perspective to maybe problematize some of the common knowledge about that event. And at that time, um, Italy obviously didn't exist as a as a, an entity, and it was there was lots of separate um, states like Venice and uh, Florence, influenced by other European powers, and it, it was quite a complicated picture. So, can you just explain to us who was in charge of which bits of Italy and how that jigsaw fitted together at that time? I can indeed, and it, it is a very messy jigsaw, I have to say. So. Starting from the northeast, you've mentioned Venice. I mean, I think it's really important to to note that the Austro-Hungarian Empire uh, controlled territory that extended all the way into what is now the contemporary Veneto on the borders almost approaching to Milan. So the whole of the northeast of Italy was essentially linked into the Austro-Hungarian project or answerable to it would be a more accurate way of putting this. In the northwest, we had the Kingdom of Sardinia and Piemont which was again a rather messy entity that had been exchanging its borders with French powers for 50 to 60 years, a lot of changing boundaries and borders going on. As we move to central Italy, you mentioned Tuscany, uh, the Grand Ducato of Tuscany, which was one of the leading and most wealthy and prominent of this sort of galaxy of independent states. Um, the papal states, of course, were all answerable to the Vatican, were also linked into this, and they all related to each other in a way that was, you know, sometimes a productive rivalry, sometimes, frankly, far less so. But, you know, the one that I've been most fixated on in my work has been everything south of this. So when we move south of Rome, this enormous landmass and territory uh, that, that, that takes in Naples, Puglia, modern day Sicily, uh, which was called the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies. It was governed by the Spanish Bourbon dynasty. And I think with some justification, they're considered to be one of the more despotic and anti-democratic and even backward looking of the of the rulers on the peninsula and islands at this particular moment. So this is 1859, the, the lay of the land. And I, I think I should also add that you know, moving between these these territories, there was such a degree of heterogeneity in culture. I mean, there was no unified Italian language at this point. People were speaking enormously different dialects to one another. There were divergences in art, in culture, in customs that were really incredibly detailed and going to an even more uh, a sort of micro level than the than the carving up that we've just done geographically. Um, and for me personally, I mean, you know, as a, as a journalist and a scholar working here in Italy, it's exciting. I find that diversity very, very uh, stimulating and exciting. But at that moment in 1859, just before the Risorgimento was able to get its real kick, uh, a lot of intellectuals, particularly Enlightenment, bourgeois, gentlemen of the of the Piemonte state and in Tuscany, were very concerned that there was a kind of lack of unity uh, in, in, in amongst these Italian states and that the country that was to be uh, was really lagging behind these competitive neighbouring states in Austria-Hungary and in France. And where did the impulse for unification come from? Was it the rise of, you know, big, powerful countries like France, like the Austro-Hungarian Empire? Where did the idea come from? Where where, where did the impulse... I think, you know, there are a couple of ways of answering the question. Um, One of them that I find particularly compelling is that there's been a desire for Italian unification since even the collapse of the Roman Empire in the 5th century. I mean, there's been this sense of a peninsula 
in decline, that's falling to pieces. And the space that should be a nation that's Italy is in fact a kind of a black hole or a void or, 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 or a missed potential of some kind. And this is sort of a long trope that occurs in literature right the way through the medieval period, right the way through the Renaissance, and starts to accelerate in the 18th and 19th century. The more uh, materialist answer to your question is that it's a response to the French Revolution and to the birth of kind of uh, bourgeois democratic liberal ambitions. There was a project, particularly within uh, this, this Enlightenment bourgeoisie that I've mentioned, scholars, poets, uh, literary critics, politicians, who had this appetite for constructing something that would be a more efficient, modern, democratic society uh, with some degree of free market capitalism that was at this point in time, you know, conceived to be a, a legitimate model for, for, for economic growth. And seeing that elements of this had been successful in nearby France and Austria, this was definitely that sense of an inferiority complex, that sense of horizon, that sense of a lost historical destiny, all kind of... Uh, consolidated with one another into this dream of the Risorgimento and the dream of Italy. And so there you mentioned uh, democracy, which was the other sort of big intellectual idea that influenced this whole situation. And particularly when we come to talk about Garibaldi later, that uh, democracy and the unification of Italy were the two kind of big ideas that he was pushing for. So can you just talk a bit about democracy at this point, because at, at, at this moment in time, I think only Switzerland and America are democracies, mm -hmm. not universal suffrage, of course, but uh, we had to wait a long, long yeah, time for that. Yeah, unfortunately so, um, yeah. <laughs> but can you just talk a bit about that? Because that's an, another very, very important idea, isn't it? I think so, yeah. So, I mean, this is a complicated question. I think that when we're looking at the Italian understanding of democracy in the 19th century, in fact, uh, one of the most important reference points uh, was actually Britain and Westminster and the Westminster system. The idea of having an elected parliament in a two-chamber system with checks and balances to protect the rule of law and to regulate markets was something that was considered to be uh, the kind of politics that would be appropriate for the middle class of the time and for the bourgeoisie of the time. This is one trend uh, which in Italy is often called liberal democracy. There was another more radical manifestation of this that was, uh, you know, vocalised by thinkers like Giuseppe Mazzini, the Republican thinker. Uh, and this version of democracy also included within it some kind of proto-socialist ideas about the redistribution of wealth and trying to deconstruct the last vestiges of feudalism that were remaining within the Italian economy. Uh, and so economic justice also had an important part to play in conversations about democracy. And the relationship between that as, in, as manifest in social movements and the parliamentary models that people were experimenting with how they might look in Italy, uh, where again, that was one of the main conversations for the Risorgimento of what a future Italian state would look like. And uh, I have to ask this question because, of course, at that time, the church was enormously powerful. So can you um, just talk a little bit about the role that the church played and the way that thinkers like Mazzini and Garibaldi, what, what, what they, how they viewed the church and what their sort of plan was for the church in their new vision of Italy? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the church is a kind of eternal problem for any of the secular visions of how to build an Italian state, and it would be for long after 1860. Uh, as a kind of consolidation of wealth and power, it was by far the most important of the chess pieces that were in operation on the Italian peninsula. It was international in its scope, but it also connected right the way down to local level politics, 
the clergy and the uh, you know the, the Catholic Church on the whole controlled vast swathes of property. They had investments in agriculture. They were a political unit as much as they were a spiritual and religious entity. And for those like Garibaldi and Mazzini who wished to construct a kind of liberal redistributive potential parliamentary democracy, this kind of entrenched power was obviously an enormous obstacle. And while both of those thinkers did engage with the kind of importance of myth-making, of the, of the spiritual dimension of moralism in some respect as being an important part of what their project was, they, I think it's safe to say they had a rather different interpretation of what those doctrines might be geared towards than the, the clergy as a class and the church as essentially a property-owning entity. All right, wonderful. Well, I think we should um, go to your first scene now, please. So can you um, can you take us there? Yeah, absolutely, of course. So we're going back to Sicily. Uh, it's now the uh, 11th of May, uh, 1860, and Garibaldi, who we've just mentioned, the Italian revolutionary nationalist, has just landed in Marsala, in Marsala, uh, the port in the in the west of Sicily, and he's making his way towards Palermo uh, to see to siege the capital uh, of the island. And this is, you know, one of the moments in which the Risorgimento is suddenly kind of appearing out of nowhere. This is not the first time that people have tried to do a revolt to unify Italy. We've been discussing some of these movements. There was 1833, 1848. Garibaldi's been here before. He's even been in exile in, in South America, aiding the Uruguayan resistance against Argentina. By now, he's a seasoned Democrat who has had a whole lifetime of, of campaigning behind him. But this time in Sicily, the, 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 the kind of apparatus and political framework that seems to be in place is slightly different. Um, the, the men that he's gathered around him uh, is this small assemblage of radicals, right? They are the, the, the 1,000 red shirts, as they're known, um, were volunteers that he kind of last minute managed to amass to go and help out with a with a local revolt against the Bourbon uh, dynasty uh, in Palermo. So they were there not ostensibly necessarily with this ambition to unify Italy at this point. Uh, they were there to help out with the provincial revolt, to continue in this democratic mission. Um, on the other hand, something was slightly different. Another one of the players that we mentioned at the beginning of this discussion, the Piemontese, the Savoy monarchy, also had a vested interest in this. They had been having an open wire with Garibaldi about what, whether he could play an instrumental role in conquering some of these southern territories on their behalf. So Garibaldi's landed, he sets out there, uh, he's at the gates of Palermo with these thousand men, without a lot of arsenal, without a lot of weaponry behind them, um, but in some way also representing, and this is a very important point, the force of Vittorio Emanuele and of the, the Piemontese as well. So the dream of this Italian state is still there in the background, but it's a long way off. Now, as Garibaldi's troops begin to enter into Palermo, it's worth pointing out that the local population was already uh, up in arms. You know, the, 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 the local Republicans, the liberals that were in place had constructed barricades in the city. They'd heard that Garibaldi was coming, but they were really outnumbered. I mean, the total number of forces that we're looking at here between the Garibaldians and the Sicilian resistance was about 300 men, 3,000 men uh, in total against a Bourbon garrison of 17,000. I mean, on paper, this mission looked absolutely doomed. Uh, and the fact that it's not, I mean, if you, if you if you look at kind of paintings and films, there's a there's a sort of fun propagandistic version of this that suggests that Garibaldi and his guys, they turn up 
and through just their sheer vitality and will and strength of their ideals, they're able to overthrow the Bourbon garrison. This, of course, is, is something of a fantasy. Uh, I mean, there are two more uh, uh, you know, consolidated reasons that we could really point to for the su eventual success of Garibaldi. Uh, one of them would be the, the, the disorganisation within the, the Bourbon navy itself. So Ferdinando Lanza, the, the commander of the, of the Bourbons, in response to the Garibaldians, he starts to uh, bombard heavily the city centre of Palermo on the 27th of May almost indiscriminately. I mean, the damage caused is unbelievable. Over 600 civilians are killed in the process. The jails are liberated. At this moment, I mean, some of the last residual support for the Bourbons uh, is lost and the, 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 the population of Palermo does tend to side with the Garibaldians at, at this point. However, I think there's a more important and interesting uh, dimension here for as to the ultimate success of this first campaign. And that is, in fact, the presence of the British Navy and the British Empire. So in the ports, uh, you know, Britain, I should say, has had a long relationship with Sicily uh, at this point. So in the in the 19th century, in the early decades of the 19th century, the island was uh, a, an important part of the geopolitical strategy for containing some of the ambitions of Napoleon and his uh, desire to expand in the Mediterranean. So the British had historically had quite a good relationship with the Bourbon dynasty. Uh, they were trading partners. Uh, aside from their, their military relationship, they were also importing large amounts of sulfur um, for gunpowder and to be used in industrial processes, as well as grain, citrus and some luxury goods like uh, Marsala wine. So we can say that, you know, this was, this was a pretty good relationship that was going on. However, sat there, seeing the centre of this port being bombarded in such absolutely savage fashion by the Bourbon generals, while international press was kind of on the side of Garibaldi and was moving towards a democratic narrative, it became clear that something was changing in the air. So instead of sitting by, as one might have expected, these British ships actually decided to move towards the port of Palermo. And I should say, you know, not a shot was fired here, but it was clear to everybody involved that something was changing. And on the 30th of May, so only a few days after the beginning of this insurrection, uh, while the bodies are starting to pile up in the street, the British organise a meeting on board a, 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 a naval vessel, the HMS Hannibal, where they brought together Garibaldi and some of the Bourbon generals, and they managed to organise a ceasefire, an armistice. armistice. And so Lanza and the Bourbons were forced to retreat. And Garibaldi, I mean, uh, having faced all of these appalling odds on paper at the beginning of this campaign, suddenly finds himself having effectively conquered Palermo uh, and Italy is in his sights. And before we move on, I'd like to tell us a bit more about Garibaldi and this sort of myth of him, because I think that's a very important factor in the entire unification of Italy. Um, this this image that he had and, and how how that image was produced. I mean, I know he was, as you, you mentioned, the newspapers, he was very much written about in, in a sort of in, internationally, wasn't he, in America and in, in, in Britain. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, this is absolutely right. I mean, and it's, it's a fascinating story that actually um, both predates and goes far beyond 1860. So the construction of Garibaldi as a kind of celebrity revolutionary is a key part of the story. I mean, to be somewhat flippant about it, he was kind of like a Che Guevara of his age. I mean, 
But well, don't you think Che Guevara based himself in part on? I, I mean, indeed, on we, we can. Garibaldi. I think we can say that for sure. That Garibaldi is like the archetype of what a sort of macho man revolutionary hero is going to look like. And as you say, yeah, this is a, 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 to some extent the product of a media uh, kind of spectacle that was created in op-eds and in journalism. But it was also to do with his his reputation as a speaker. I mean, he did an extraordinary amount of touring that was sort of organised by Mazzini and the Republicans in exile to go and drum up support for Italian unification. He was a dashing looking guy. He was a good public speaker. He had a good way with people. Uh, and they were really trying to do everything they could to construct the idea that he was going to represent the vitality of what a military campaign to unify Italy would look like. I should also add that actually a lot of this happened retrospectively after the unification process. So some of the anecdotes we hear about his popularity in England uh, and elsewhere really date to a tour he did in 1864 and later on. So even after the unification, there was this sort of uh, not even posthumous, but a posthumous process from the unification of reconstructing that legend again and again and again for the First World War. The fascists did it. The communists did it. He became a kind of archetypal figure that was almost removed from the man himself. Yeah. And he was very successful in drumming up money, wasn't he? I mean, I can't remember what the figure was for the money that was sent from Britain, but Charles Dickens and Florence Nightingale were... And guns as well. Yeah, the people were actually sending directly uh, arms shipments to Genoa before he set out with the with the thousand from, from England. Uh, but yeah, Charles Dickens and, and, and Florence Nightingale were two of the big names <laughs> that, that, yeah, that contributed. Yeah. <laughs> um, and um, another thing I wanted to ask, and maybe, I don't know if we should maybe talk about this a bit later, but I'm just going to ask now. Um, was there... Because I've been to Sicily and, and spent time there and it does feel like a completely different place to even to southern Italy, mm. which, again, you know, feels very different from northern Italy. But was there at that time a, a, a movement for independence? I mean, it it seems like a, it seems like a, a straight strange that a place like Sicily wouldn't have wanted to have self-determination. Was that a feature of their history? So it was indeed. Um the key date to keep in mind here is actually 1848. Um, so that fateful year of revolutions across or attempted revolutions across Italy and Europe and indeed the world, Sicily was actually one of the prime movers in this. So that year, uh, for 12 months, uh, a, a group of Sicilian liberals did in fact manage to create a quasi-independent Sicilian state for themselves. One of the problems that they faced was that they were unable to find support from international benefactors and allies to protect them militarily against the Bourbons and to ensure that they were able to have a, a kind of prolonged dynasty in place. A lot of fragmentation within the independence movement between monarchists and republicans uh, really held it back. So by the time of the Italian unification, that had kind of uh, been exhausted as an idea that had been a failed revolution. Um, and Italy seemed for most of the people that had been involved in this aborted Sicilian independence attempt to be the second best option they could have, I would say, after, yeah. after their own independence. So they were more focused on ridding Italy of the occupiers, as it were, Correct. rather than yeah, yeah. their own Indeed. independence. Um, OK, wonderful. Well, I think let's go to scene two. And we're still in Sicily. Um, can you tell us um, where, where we are and what's happening? Yeah. So, I mean, until now, we've talked about uh, uh, this kind of Garibaldian mission in fairly glowing terms, which is not uncommon, that Garibaldi is representing this sort of fairly pure, liberating 
force into Sicily and is representing progress and modernity in a rather unproblematic way. Of course, history is always rather more complicated than this. And there are many kind of uh, small examples that point to perhaps the darker or more uncomfortable side of what some of the Redcoat campaign looks like. One of the most important, in my opinion, happened in the small town of Bronte uh, between the 2nd and the 5th of August in 1860. So only a couple of months after Garibaldi has taken control in Palermo. Now, Bronte itself, uh, as I say, it's a small town. It's on the foothills of Mount Etna. It's not known for much. I mean, it's got very uh, fertile soil because of being on a volcano. So it grows wine, it has vegetables, it's an agricultural community. Uh, it's well known actually for its pistachio nuts, which are de deemed to be some mm. of the best in the world. But anyway, this is an aside. <laughs> so aside from this, I mean, it really is it, it's a fairly out of the way place that most people on a map would perhaps struggle to position. Uh, but in 1860, I mean, it really was suffering from poverty. We're talking about a peasantry that was struggling with malaria. It had appalling sanitation. There was almost no education. And the ruling class, uh, 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 the ruling landowners seemed reluctant to, to redistribute any of their resources to the people who were in need. So, you know, by now it's August, it's boiling hot. It could be 40 degrees plus. It's the Sicilian summer. There are mosquitoes everywhere. There's malaria. And they, the people of Bronte hear the news of Garibaldi's success in Palermo. And I think unsurprisingly decide that they're going to have a revolt of their own. And spontaneously, they decide to rise up uh, against the landowners. So, you know, on the 2nd of August, they organised this march through the centre of the village uh, against the people they know as the Capelli, the hat wearers, who are essentially, yes, the, the, the feudal landowners of the area. And frankly, things get violent quite quickly. Um, during the demonstrations, uh, 17 of these Capelli landowners are killed, uh, you know, in, in, in clashes in the streets. And some of the uh, more organised, socialist-inspired peasants even organise uh, occupation of some of the larger estates that were in place. Now, hearing just the kind of synopsis of what happened there, you might think this sounds like a Garibaldian revolt in spirit. I mean, after all, we're talking about working people coming to seize, uh, you know, land and their rights away from representatives of the old ruling class who had links with the Bourbons. Unfortunately, uh, for the people of Bronte who were involved in this protest, this, this didn't prove to be the case, or it proved to be rather more complicated than perhaps they would have been able to imagine. This is largely because the landowners in Bronte were not just any landowners. They were, in fact, British, and they were hmm. uh, the descendants of Horatio Lord Nelson. So in 1799, Nelson had uh, received a rather large estate of, I think, 16,000 hectares from the Bourbon dynasty uh, for having protected uh, Naples and Sicily from Republican revolts. Now, of course, this puts Garibaldi in a bit of a dilemma because, as we've just discussed, the British have proved to be his key ally in securing him access to the port of Palermo. Um, they are key trading partners with Sicily. And so he realises that this is an alliance that cannot be compromised. Um, and what happens next, I think, is, is, is difficult for anybody who has democratic sympathies with what Garibaldi and the, and the Italian nationalists were trying to do. So he sends one of his uh, right-hand men, uh, this, this, this general called Nino Bixio, uh, who's one of his most trusted uh, you know, soldiers and has been there since the beginning of the campaign. And Bixio is sent to 
essentially put down this revolt that's taking place in Bronte. And to put it, you know, frankly, he does his job uh, in rather brutal fashion. The Redcoats turn up, uh, they, they, they arrest hundreds of people. They create immediate show trials to, uh, among five of the leaders uh, who are very promptly sentenced and shot in the town square in front of everybody. Now, understandably, this is not one of the chapters of the unification that Italians tend to talk uh, very much about. I mean, personally, I think the events are awful in their own right for, for, for many reasons. Um, but equally symbolically, I mean, we're looking at a revolt that was essentially Garibaldian or potentially Garibaldian in character being put down by the Garibaldians themselves, which is from a point of view of uh, contradicting some of the propaganda that was in place in that moment of Risorgimento. I mean, this is one of the key examples. Um, I think, I mean, it's worth adding too that the Sicilians themselves did not forget these events, right? So the novelist Giovanni Verga in 1883, who was himself a Garibaldian, uh, wrote a short novella called Libertà, Liberty, with the ironic title, uh, which was dedicated to the events and the massacre that happened there in Bronte. Although it's worth noting he didn't feel uh, sufficiently confident to use the name Bronte. Perhaps it would have been a bit too on the nose. But yeah, I mean, more generally speaking, within Sicilian folklore, Sicilian culture, when people think about the example of Bronte, it's often uh, as an emblem, a rather sad emblem of some of the failed promises of the Italian unification seen so early on. It's an example that, as some people would see it, the rich were going to remain rich, the poor were going to remain poor, and the new liberating force was going to be just as uh, bad as the previous lot. But presumably, if the landlords had been Sicilian or Italian, he wouldn't he wouldn't have done anything. Or do you think that's not true? Do you think it was just the fact that they were English? This is my personal opinion. Yeah, I think I think given the wider geopolitics in which un Italian unification came into being, uh, his hands were tied. It's 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 a question yeah. we don't have an answer to. But I believe he had a certain kind of metaphorical gun to his head in this particular case. And I suppose in those days, that is the way justice was done. And it was it was a much more brutal society than we're perhaps used to now. Sadly, yes, I think so. Hello, it's Artemis. For some time, we've been working with the visual historian Jordan Lloyd, and we've been telling you about his fascinating colorization work. Well, recently, Jordan has launched his new project, it's a website called Unseen Histories, which showcases a broad range of fascinating historical material. You can read feature-length pieces there about female fashion in the Victorian era, or beautifully illustrated extracts from books like Susan Denham Wade's A History of Seeing. For those of you who have enjoyed Jordan's colourisation work in the past, there's a full range of remastered photographs from the archives of the Library of Congress. It's history for our times. Do have a look for yourself at unseenhistories.com. So now let's move on to your third scene um, where we are going to Naples, I believe. Correct. Yeah. So we're kind of sticking with the Garibaldian campaign or the, or, or, or the final moments of the first wave of the Garibaldian campaign. So throughout the month of September to early October, he makes this journey up towards Naples. He's become convinced now that this isn't a kind of test run for Italian unification. This is the real deal. He's going to make his way up and go for the real prize, which in his mind is Rome. But of course, he has to get rid of the Bourbons in, in Naples first. So he makes his way gradually with his men up towards up towards uh, uh, their main palazzo in Capodimonte uh, in Naples. 
Meanwhile, his benefactors from the Piemontese dynasty, the Savoy, are making their way southward, down the peninsula, uh, fighting a, an analogous series of battles uh, in the Papal States, where they gain some of their own territories. So by the 20th, 21st of October, the two sides of this kind of unifying mission meet in the countryside just outside of Naples. And this is the moment when ostensibly Garibaldi hands over power for the revolution to the Piemontese and says, right, this can't be a kind of popular movement, a guerrilla war anymore. We need to make a state in some way. And the event at which this really takes place is the 21st of October, 1860. And this is the date in which the Piemontese organize a plebiscite uh, across the newly conquered territories in the south of Italy, asking the people if they wish to belong uh, to the new kingdom of Italy with Vittorio Manuele of Piemonte, the Savoy dynasty, as their king. And so, lo and behold, drumroll, as you can imagine, the turnout is essentially unanimously for yes, to a degree that is really astounding. If we look at the official statistics in Sicily, the, the votes for yes amount to over 45,000. I think it's 46,000 in total. And the no votes are around 600 and, and something, something absolutely negligible. OK, I mean, this may be the case. There's no doubting that many of the southern public and members of the citizenship were willing to embrace this this new Italian dynasty. Many historians, though, especially revisionists within the within the southern tradition, have argued and suggested that there was some degree of corruption or intimidation within the polls or that these numbers were fluked in some way. I mean, Tommaso di Lampedusa in his novel The Leopard, the wonderful novel, uh, even makes a kind of an analogy about this, which, while not perhaps something we can point to for factual evidence, is intriguing. And this is the scene in which his Prince of Salina goes to vote in the plebiscite. Uh, and he sees that Garibaldi's picture and, and Vittorio Manuele are already there on the wall in the polling booth. And when he comes away from voting, he chats with his friend, a fellow member of the nobility, who's in fact voted no in the referendum. But when they go and see the results uh, uh, the next day hanging up in the piazza, uh, in fact, it supposedly was a unanimous yes vote in their local constituency. So, you know, we don't have any particular evidence that can point to this with certainty, but there's a general uh, suspicion, let's say, within some uh, spheres of scholarship, particularly revisionist meridionalisti scholarship, uh, that there was some playing with the numbers here. I think even if we can't point to uh, a, a kind of explicit corruption there, we can at least say that the southern acceptance of the Italian state was less, there was less consensus behind it than perhaps that plebiscite would suggest. I mean, brigantaggio, banditry, is a, a phenomenon that is really, really important that happens within the context of the plebiscite, but also in the months and years that follow it. There were hundreds, if not thousands, of pro-Bourbon or anti-Italian or southern separatists or other kinds of outlaws that were opposing the slow formulation of the Italian state in the months following, uh, following the supposed acceptance of this new kingdom. Uh, and this was to the point that, you know, even in the years that were to follow when the Piemontese were really trying to consolidate this new kingdom, they were forced repeatedly to send uh, various large regiments down to enforce law and order in Naples and in Sicily. So the local population clearly didn't embrace this new situation with open arms, kind of frothing at the mouth with a new Italian vigour. Um, and there's a whole chapter there related to the origins of the mafia, but I think that's another story. But one can say that some of the early conditions for which mafia was able to 
established such deep roots within the south of Italy was as, as a response to ways in which the southern populations attempted to navigate some of the uh, grey areas that were opened up as a result of the of the of the you know um, attempts at unification. Let's say. And how much of that was organised in advance? Because. I mean, the great fear is always that there will be a void uh, in power and that, that, that then every, you know, will descend into civil war. So obviously that was the, the primary thing they needed to avoid. So they needed to have someone in charge. And I imagine at that time, because there's so few um, parliamentary democracies without a monarch, that the idea of not having a monarch, there were, that was quite an extreme view. So in a way, they needed somebody to be the monarch and um, the Savoy... Um, that they were the obvious choice because they'd been involved were that were they even could they even be thought of as italian were were they were they thought of as italians by by the southerners N- probably not i think you know it's a hard question there's a, there's a, there's a, there's again a lot of this comes down to cultural anecdotes that one finds in secondary sources or in, in literary sources and one that I've quite liked is that uh, apparently uh, there was an anthropologist doing some research in, in a hill town near to Naples shortly after the unification. Uh, and they, they asked one of the, the local women there uh, what she thought about Italy. And uh, this woman responded that she thought that Italy was the wife of the new king uh, rather than a country at all. And I think, you know, who knows whether that's actually a correct, factually true anecdote, but it certainly tells us something. Well, it's very believable, it's, isn't it? It is. I, mean, be- I think it's believable. I like to think it's uh, it, it, that, that, that something of that sort uh, took place, certainly. But do you think that Garibaldi had made this arrangement with Ca- it's Cavour, isn't it? Who was the so yeah yeah the Count of Cavour was the was the leading statesman involved from the Piemontese side, yes. In, yeah. Do you think they made this arrangement before, or was this something that happened? You know, when they had this meeting. Outside uh, it's something that uh, is it's a difficult one to establish. That we can see the kind of letters that go back and forth. That Cavour was actually very suspicious of Garibaldi and his campaign. I mean, from his perspective, the Garibaldian energies were actually rather radical. He was uh, Cavour was a moderate, right? He was attempting to. He was from an aristocratic background. He was attempting to represent the interests of the Piemontese middle class and their aspiring uh, kind of industrialist energies and their, uh, you know, move towards modernization. Garibaldi represented, to, in his eyes, a kind of more of a wild card, having been this sort of radical Republican in his younger years, still desiring a, a more dramatic uh, redistribution of wealth. His anti-clerical energies were really quite vocal at points in his career. So there was this separation. There was never a kind of mutual trust between these two figures. And the way that I would read it certainly is that Cavour was the one pulling the strings at this point. So so, so the idea of kind of de-radicalising some of those revolutionary energies that Garibaldi had unlocked in his campaign, that was his main motivation in the plebiscite and in the subsequent steps that were taken towards forming the basis of the, the Italian state by the next spring. And I wonder about today. How how, how does it how does it work today? Do, are there people in Sicily who uh, are fighting for, or maybe not fighting, but um, what would like independence from the rest of Italy? Or, or so not? I mean, again, the question of Sicilian independence it comes up uh, every now and then with kind of hundred years between it. If we take a, a, a long view at Sicilian history, so. The most recent time that was really taken seriously was after the Second World War, when in fact the independence movement was one of the leading political parties in the Sicilian uh, apparatus in the, in the post-fascist era. 
But again, uh, this kind of over a certain period of time just just died out. Um, and, 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 you know, there's much speculation as to why that's been and why the Sicilians haven't made louder calls for their own autonomy. Um, one of the main explanations we get is related to the mafia, sadly, yeah. and to the, to the fact that there was a kind of erosion of the social sphere and democratic ambitions altogether in the post-war period, particularly from the 1960s to the 1990s. Uh, that really kind of any view towards self having a society that was sufficiently self-confident to make an articulate call for self-determination uh, was kind of rendered impossible by, by the mafia as a national and international reality. And they probably consider themselves to be the kings of Sicily yeah, anyway, it, it, don't it's, they? It's so. one way of looking at it, certainly, yeah. So interesting, really interesting. So what happened to Garibaldi then? So Garibaldi, I mean, you know, he had a, another couple of shots at trying to do the unification of Italy properly. Uh, so, so, so in uh, 1863 and 64, he had tried again to try, uh, yeah, to make an occupation of Rome and to make Rome the capital of Italy. This was his way of trying to reanimate some of those more radical revolutionary energies from the south of Italy that he'd encouraged during the 1860 uprisings and a kind of way of sidestepping Vittorio Emanuele and the, and the Cavour model of statehood that had begun to establish itself. So unfortunately for Garibaldi, this mission proved to be unsuccessful. He led a kind of a revival of the thousand red shirts to do this campaign. It didn't really work out. He got shot uh, and famously then kind of went off into a self-imposed exile in Sardinia, where he lived a, a pretty frugal life. Uh, I mean, apparently, purportedly walked off into the sunset literally with a with a with a with a with a packet of tobacco and some dried salt cods over his shoulder, never to be seen again. This is a slight exaggeration. He had some involvement in public life, but his revolutionary energies and his revolutionary days were kind of done after this point. Yeah. Um, but his uh, legend. But his legend on. lived on indeed. <laughs> um, so I think now I I just have one more question I want to ask you, um, and that is if you could have taken something as a memento from our journey back in time today, what would it be? Right. So I've I've been thinking about this. I have to say a bit over the past couple of days, um, and it seems I've been thinking about this question with my stomach, um, because. My answer to you would be that I would like to uh, time warp some Neapolitan pastries from the 19th century into our current age. And these wouldn't just be any pastries, I have to clarify. These would be pastries created by a certain kind of elite chef who were called the Monzu. Now, the Monzu were the chefs who were in the employ of the southern nobility specifically. So in, in Naples and Sicily in the 18th, 19th and I think early 20th century as well. And these monzu, they went off to France and they learned these extraordinarily elaborate cooking techniques, which they then brought back to the south of Italy. Uh, and they created a lot of kind of quite insane recipes, some of them less insane. I mean, uh, the, the eggplant parmigiana is one of their inventions. Some of these kind of elaborate meat dishes with thick sauces. This is the kind of thing we're talking about. Some of them are frankly obscene and decadent and revolting. Uh, you might have heard of the timbalo, uh, which is mentioned again in, in Lampedusa's uh, The Leopard, which is this kind of pasta pie with various kinds of chicken livers and hearts, but also a sweet 
custard and a sweet crust. I mean, it sounds absolutely revolting. So I think those can stay in the 19th century southern Italy. But what I want to bring back are the, are the sweet treats. And this is also because, I mean, A, they would be lovely to eat. I mean, they were macaroons, the rum baba, a lot of zeppole, a lot of these uh, kind of really extravagant, fantastic southern desserts were invented by this particular group of chefs at this moment in time. But more seriously, kind of linked into our discussion, I'd be interested in trying some of the, the lost recipes that were that, that have kind of fallen through the cracks over time that this particularly strange servant class were creating for their aristocratic masters. And I think just what kind of insight that would give us into the, the decadence of this collapsing ruling nobility, which, you know, shortly after 1860 was to be confined to history and gone, gone forever. So as a kind of culinary time warp back, I think this would be uh, an interesting memento. <laughs> I think that's a great memento. Are there cookbooks which with there are some they're really hard to track down and a lot of them have anonymous authors but there is yeah there's a kind of recent wave in italy actually of uh, trying to rediscover some of these so 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 while we don't have many of the complete cookbooks there's anthologies that you can that you can turn to to for, for some inspiration uh, let's say and is that where things because my one of my favorite um, memories of sicily was eating cannoli the the paste, those little pastries with chocolate in, uh, is is that the kind of thing that is that's the inheritance of that, or or is that from a different tradition? Is that maybe from the Arabic tradition of cooking, which I know is also very influential? In yeah, I mean, so the short answer to this is nobody really knows. Um, there are early versions of yeah the cannoli and the cassata cake as well that are dated back to the Arab occupation and to the Arab Norman times. So we're talking about you know the the anything from the 10th to 13th century as being this moment at which some of the early incarnations of these desserts and this dessert making tradition exists. So certainly there's an Arab influence, but I think it's safe to say that it was the Monzu and the Baroque cooks that really made the modern versions that would be recognisable to us today. Yeah, it's one of the best things about Sicily, um, the food, definitely. Um, and it is one, it's my favourite place on earth. I think it's it's wonderful, wonderful place. Um, thank you so much, Jamie. I've really, really enjoyed um, our conversation. And I hope everyone who's listened feels like they've had a bit of Sicilian sunshine on this very grey November day. Thank you very much indeed. That was me, Violet Muller, talking to Jamie Mackay the other day about his fascinating book, The Invention of Sicily, A Mediterranean History. For more information and some striking images, please visit tttpodcast.com, where you can subscribe and access all the episodes in our archive. Thanks for listening. Until next time, goodbye.